turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 2. Um, if you're on a device, you can go the English Standard Version. If you have a U version or if you have some, some, uh, some Bible version on your device, that's what you're going to want to go to. Ezra 2. We are jumping into what is going to be about a five to six month run through both the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which were originally written uh, as one book. So we're going to treat them as one book. We're just going to sandwich them together and, and go through the whole thing. We started last week, um, remember, getting a little context of the history, which was that the Israelites are coming out of 70 years of captivity, Babylonian captivity. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar took over, uh, the ruler of the, of the known world back then took over Israel, uh, brought the children of Israel into captivity, and then at some point, King Cyrus of Persia took over where King Nebuchadnezzar left off. And what we come into when we come into Ezra, which is, by the way, a book that doesn't really feature the person of Ezra, who was a, a scribe and a priest, but he's actually writing the words. He's chronicling the history um, that we're reading about in Ezra. But um, he tells us that at some point, King Cyrus gives the children of Israel a green light to return to the land, to return to Jerusalem, to return to their towns and start rebuilding uh, the temple. So this was something that was prophesied by Jeremiah years before. He said, you're going to be taken into 70 years of captivity, and at some point, God is going to release you back to the land that he promised you, and he's going to give you the means to rebuild the temple. This is what we learned last week, is that God is unconstrained by the things that constrain us to accomplish his purposes, to keep his promises. He uses all kinds of different means to do that, right? So if nothing holds you back from something, it means that nothing's going to get in your way to thwart what it is that you're doing to accomplish what you set out to do. So God uses earthly pagan kings like Nebuchadnezzar, like King Cyrus here. He uses resources, stuff that we would never think of, stuff that might be a hindrance to us, stuff that we lack, and he provides those things to accomplish everything that he set out to do. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to see what happened when the Israelites took this step of faith after they were given the green light to go back to Jerusalem and what that looked like for them as a nation as they began uh, that process. Man, I remember 12 years ago when the Lord opened up a door for us, my family, my wife, Melissa, my daughter, Beth, to move to Ohio. And it was it was a step of faith. It felt more like a leap, if I'm being honest with you. Um, there was never this moment where we felt confident at any time in the process, right? Loading up the truck. How you feeling now, Ronnie? Kind of worse. I don't know. Um, saying goodbye to family. How you feeling now? A little better about that, um, but still not wholly and fully confident that this is what we're supposed to be doing. And everybody's saying, yeah, but you're taking a step of faith. And I'm like, it feels like I'm stepping out into, into nothing. It feels like I'm stepping over a cliff. And it was a step of faith that, um, that brought us here. I had one super scared wife. I had one super unhappy teenage daughter. And I had two, per, su I mean, two super, super furious cats is what I had. Um, the first thing that someone said to me after I landed in Ohio, drove to Ashland, and I saw this person... And the first thing this person said to me, just so you know the level of encouragement that we received upon landing in Ohio was this. this. This dude said to me, my friends and I, Ronnie, are giving you six months. 
And I went, I went, come again? He goes, my friends and I have put bets on how long you're going to last, and we've said six months. And I looked at him, and it sounds funny, but it was the least funny thing to happen to me that whole week building up to our transition into Ohio. And I said, brother, I go, I'm just telling you right now, this thing has to last longer than six months. It can go seven months, but I'm telling you right now, it needs to go longer than six months. And almost 12 years later, um, God has given us a home and a church. He's just cemented us here. When God provides opportunities for his people, he calls on them to take steps of faith that, by the way, and here's the big piece, because it really has nothing to do with my meager, weak, fragile, scared to death step of faith. But he calls people to take steps of faith that never fall outside the realm of his faithfulness. That's the big piece that we're going to be looking at today. As the church walks in faith, Christ's faithfulness is contained in every step. So one thing you might notice if you look down on Ezra chapter 2 is that there is a rather sizable genealogy of the people that he called back to Jerusalem. I, when I walked in, Tom Brome was sitting there and he said, I can't wait to see what you're going to do with that genealogy today, Ron. And I said, well, I, man, that vote of confidence, it, it feels good to me right now. I appreciate that. I feel ready to run uh, with that. I said, you know what's funny, Tom, is I have no idea what I'm going to do uh, with that either. So here's what we know. When we get, get to those places in the Bible where there's all these genealogies and the son of and the son of and the son of and all those things, um, what we know is that um, genealogies are hard to read, okay? That's the first thing we know which is why I'm going to skim over some of these names, not because they're not important, they are. Every word that is in God's word is important, but because it was important for me to like not have to take a phonics class this week before I, before I got through this sermon. But genealogies matter. And they matter because they point to stories of God's faithfulness and to the personal way that he knows his people by name. And the way that he keeps his promises to them, to that intricate level of knowledge that he has about them. So I'm going to jump around a little bit as we get into chapter 2, so hopefully you'll be able to follow me. But I'm going to pick up with verse 1 in chapter 2, and it says this. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. And they came with Zerubbabel, who ended up being one of their leaders, uh, Jeshua, who ended up being their priest, Nehemiah, uh, Sariah, and, and, and so on and so forth. That's where I'm going to sort of start skimming, the number of the men of the people of Israel. And then we go into these long passages that just give us the names of the families and the people that ended up traveling with them out of captivity back to uh, the land. Then we get down to verse 36 and it tells us the names of the priests that also came. And then we get to verse 40 and it tells us the names of the Levites, all the way to the singers and the sons of the gatekeepers. All these were key pieces, key people with roles that were going to be incredibly important for what it was going to take to rebuild uh, the temple. Let me get to verse 55, and we see the sons of Solomon's servants, all the way to verse 58. 
to where he talks about the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants, that they were numbered at 392. And then I'm going to read this part starting in verse 59. The following are those who came up from Tel Malah, Tel Harshah, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged uh, to Israel. And then you go down to 62 and it says, These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. But the governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim, and the whole assembly together was 42,360. And then we get down to 68, and it says, Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord, that is in Jerusalem, made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. And according to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 darics of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants, everybody that I, whose names I didn't just read, um, lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. So this is what we're going to look at today as we get this chapter with a rather long genealogy, and it's really an attempt to answer this question and to look a little more deeply uh, into the pages here, and it's this, what could Israel be assured of as they took these steps of faith, heading back to Jerusalem to build the temple, heading back to the towns that had been given to their parents years and years ago, they, they were gonna re-inhabit, and by virtue of that, we're going to unpack this. What can the church then be assured of as we take steps of faith that God is calling us to take as he stirs in our hearts? And so the first thing that we see as we read the beginning of this passage is that Israel could be assured that God knew both their names and their needs. That's the first thing that we could be assured of, that Israel could be assured of as as they were being called back to Jerusalem, that God knew their names and their needs. The returning households coming out of captivity, and these are named and counted. It's not just oblivious. It's not just random. And it's so important to remember, which Melissa remembered uh, for me, that, that these are not, again, even just names. They're not just numbers, but these are actually people. These are families with stories. They're like you, right? Men and women and children who had carried hopes and dreams, who were living lives, who had histories. But captivity was all that the majority of them had ever known. Whether they were leaders like Zerubbabel or a priest like Jeshua or just a family member of a tribe. This was their history. This was their reality. Imagine as we're even just kind of looking down and seeing all the sons of, the sons of, the sons of, imagine the mixture of joy and fear that existed for these brothers and sisters as they traveled tribe by tribe. They traveled family by family, person by person back to the land. You have to imagine all the worry and anxiety that may have informed the conversations that they had on their journey. This was a nation that had been in exile for so long. And now the Lord was guiding them back to the towns of their ancestors, back to the promised land. This was a transition. And what do we know about transitions? We've all been through transitions. 
In fact, you can almost argue that we're always in the middle of a transition. And some of those transitions are more significant to us in different times of our lives than they are in other times. Some of the most difficult things that happen in our lives can usually be, if we just want to give it a, you know, just an, an overall definition, it, it could be that they are transitions. Some of us go from being single to being married. Some of us go from being married to having kids. Having kids to being an empty nester. Maybe from being divorced to being newly single. Some of us go from one career to another career. Maybe some of us go from having two parents eventually to the, the death of a parent and then one parent and then no parents. Some of us go from being a student to adulting, right? We have that transition. What transitions do for us and to us is they, they, they hit really hard at our identity. That's really what a transition does, and that's really what makes a transition so hard for us. We ask this question, who am I now that I am not this? That's what a transition does for us. But Ezra, what's so interesting is he doesn't just record a bunch of random people transitioning back to Jerusalem. He records their names, the names of their families. And what this tells us and what this shows us is something so significant in your life and in my life as we look at the transitions that God has brought us through and we're trying to make sense of it. And it discombobulates us and it kind of pulls us off the tracks of comfort and familiarity that we're so used to having. But this is what it reminds us of and it's that God is not impersonal in your transition. God is not impersonal, right? So God didn't go when he was looking down at his people, he didn't go, um, you know, like you and you and you and, you know, whatever your name is over there, right? Pack the car, hit the road, and we'll figure this thing out. I mean, that's not what he did at all. You look at the intentionality of a genealogy and it's there for a particular reason. It's there to connect you with the lives and the history of a particular people, right? And so that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing that God knew the names and the needs of everyone that he was calling back. Everyone that he was calling to take a step of faith back to Jerusalem, back to rebuilding the temple. And by the way, he knows the names and the needs of his church too. That includes us as well. So when you take a step of faith into something unknown, what this reminds us of is that you are not anonymous to God. You are not doing it as someone who is anonymous to God. He knows your name. He knows your needs. He knows all the fear and the doubt. He knows the internal baggage that you carry with you. But being known by God means you can take those steps of faith knowing who you belong to. Now, I always feel like I have the courage to take steps if I know someone is with me. I used to tell Melissa this line when we were dating. I said, they can't lick us together, which was a line I stole from a movie, um, but she didn't know that till years later. Um, <laughs> But, I, but, but it was one of these things where it's like, you know, when you're, when you're in your 20s and you're dating and you're not married yet, you think the whole world's against you. The whole world is not against you, but it's just fun to think that they are so that it gives you a little fuel to kind of move on in life, right? So that was one of the lines I gave Melissa, which was, hey, as long as we're together, 
How can we fail? Well, it turns out together you can fail gloriously as well, but, that, but you know, the whole thing breaks down. But how much more courage do we have when we know we're not alone? How much more courage will we as the church have when we believe that Jesus is together with us through every step, unknown and known, seen and unseen, that we take? How much more courage will we have to remember that he knows us by name? Why? How? Because his name. Because of his name. Because his name is what? It's Emmanuel. His name means what? The God who is with us. So the same God that knew the names and the needs of the children of Israel is the same God that knows our name, that knows our needs, that is not impersonal, that does not see us as just these anonymous people stepping through life blind and all over the place. Well, I mean, sometimes we're doing that, right? I mean, we are. But it's not because we lack presence. It's not because we lack the absence of God. It's because we're human beings, and that's what happens to human beings. This level of knowingness, it fills us with a, just this particular kind of courage and hope because it goes deeper than we can possibly imagine. Turn to Psalm 139 and we get a sense of the depth of God's knowingness in our life. I think it's my favorite psalm, Psalm 139, written by David. And he just says this. I'm just going to read the first few verses. He says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Then he says just this crazy stuff right here in verse 4. He goes, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. And he says, such knowledge, it's too wonderful for me. It is too high. I can't attain it. In verse 7, he, he goes on to say, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed and chill, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall still hold me if I say... Surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. What does that tell us about the God that we serve who serves us by knowing our names and our needs to this degree? What does that tell us about when he calls us to take a step of faith? It's not just into something that's unknown because it's known by him. So remember, whatever is unknown by us is never unknown by him. As the, as the nation of Israel, if you can visualize them taking that step, taking that journey to Jerusalem, and you can imagine the conversations and the doubts and the wonderings and the man, is this just, are we just being crazy? How do we know Cyrus isn't going to pull a fast one on us when we get there? And this is just some elaborate plan, all the conspiracy theories that probably came up. Can you imagine all that stuff that would have been created in the human hearts of the people taking that journey? Because that's what would have been happening in here, 
right? In this heart, I would have been like, can we slow our roll just a tad here, ladies and gentlemen? I would have been a little more suspicious. And yet knowing to the degree that God knew what it was he was calling them to take a step toward, it doesn't matter that it was unknown to them because God knew and God knew their names and God knew their needs. It is safe to say that nobody on this planet knows me as well as the woman in this front row, Melissa Martin. But man, she does not reach Psalm 139 level. God knew their names and their needs and he knows yours. He knows ours. They could be assured of that. The church can be assured of that. Secondly, they were assured that identity, their identity with God reinforced their future. They could be assured, just like the church can be assured, that their identity with God reinforced their future. A couple of things going on here when you get to verse 59 is that we read that some people couldn't prove the legitimacy of their citizenship. Who knows what would have happened to all those records in that time of captivity, but they couldn't prove the legitimacy of their citizenship and whether they belonged to Israel because their names were not found in the register of of genealogies. You know, there there was no ancestry.com back then. There was no 23andMe. They didn't have access to those types of things. So what happens is they're told by the governor to wait until further inquiry could be made. And this is important for us to know um, because for those who claim to be part of the priesthood, only those who were legitimate priests could serve in the temple. So it was important to, to keep this list of genealogies very tight and this family list of names that we're reading to make sure that it was accurate and that it was true. It was a question of identity for these people who would need to trust the Lord for their future to make plain what wasn't yet clear. And that's what God does for us as we take steps of faith is he clears things up for us and things that are still obscured, he gives us more faith to trust that he's still working in those things that we just don't have a super clear vision on. And then we get to verse 68 and we're told that the people gave free will offerings for the building of the temple to the tune of 61,000 derricks of gold, which is roughly, listen to this one, 1,100 pounds of gold and three tons of silver. This does not remind me of my bank account, right? Just so you know. 1,100 pounds of gold, three tons of silver. Here's what we know about giving back to the Lord. Okay, we talked a a minute ago during our prayer of thanksgiving about giving back to the Lord, about giving him freely out of our cheerfulness, out of our stewardship. But here's what we know about giving back to the Lord. It is not a matter of income. It's not a matter of income. It's a matter of identity. It's always been a matter of identity. And the question that comes out of that matter of identity is this, who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? Because what you believe is yours is based on who you believe you belong to. Now follow me here. So if you believe you are independent and that you belong to no one but yourself, that you're the master of your destiny, you're the captain of your own ship, you're the maker of your own fortune, then your ATM withdrawal statement is going to reflect that, 
reality. When you view your transaction history, it will show who you believe you belong to and who you trust for your future. But when your identity is found with who King Cyrus in chapter one described as the Lord, the God of heaven, you begin to look at your money and your possessions differently. What happens is your future is not found in your finances anymore, but it's reinforced by your identity with God. Does that make sense? You, be, you begin to look at your investments differently. You begin to look at your spending differently. You begin to ask how your resources can further the building of God's kingdom. The people of Israel, they understood how important it was for the house of worship, for a house of worship to be reestablished in Jerusalem. So they gave, it says, freely. They gave sacrificially. They knew that returning to Jerusalem pointed, listen to this, to a more significant return on their investment, which was to worship God, which we're going to look at a little bit more deeply next week. So man, we all like to spend money on things that give a good return on our investment. I mean, that's just, there's nobody in here that's going to say opposite that. There might be people in here that do the opposite of that, but all of us would like to put our money in a place that we're going to get a good return on our investment, something that will increase in value over time, or at least, uh, you know, last a good amount of time. And I remember uh, just back in the 80s, back in the early 80s, obviously pre, you know, the guys, the 80s were pre-everything, just in case you were born after the 80s. Um, but, uh, you know, pre-cell phone, pre-internet, all that stuff. So my dad um, bought a couple of cell phones um, back in the early 80s. They had those things. They literally, like Motorola made these. I don't think Motorola makes cell phones. I don't know, maybe they do. But they had these things. They had these cell phones. These things were like as big as this Bible, right? And they came in a suitcase with a cord attached to the suitcase and a big antenna that came out of the suitcase. And get this, the range, up to five miles. <laughs> up to five miles. The cost for these two cell phones for him and his business partner, 10 grand. This dude, my dad, the guy I'm related to, paid 10 grand for a couple of cell phones that still were wired and had a radius of five miles. You know what? I don't know what I inherited from that guy, but I'm hoping that's not one of the things that really stuck with me deeply in terms of like making good choices. But, but they did, I made bad choices like that, just like him. Um, but we want to invest in something that's going to stand the test of time that's gonna last. I don't even know if those cell phones last him six months because they never worked, right? He had Motorola like in the parking lot looking at that briefcase like every other day. Um, wasn't a great investment, right? Here's my question, would we see investing in the temple the same way the Israelites did back then? That's a hard question to ask you, by the way. I think I deleted that question like four times and kept putting it back in there out of fear. They didn't know the future. They couldn't predict what was going to happen to them as a nation as they were giving those free will offerings. That history had proven to be all over the place for them. All they knew was that the Lord had stirred in King Cyrus's heart and in their hearts to give free will offerings so that a house of worship could be rebuilt. And they responded to that stirring by journeying back to Jerusalem and providing the resources that were needed to begin construction. 
So again, it just causes us to ask a question, right? Is the Lord stirring in our hearts to trust him with our finances? It's kind of a rhetorical question, right? Nobody's going to say, no, I don't believe he is, Ronnie, right? Because anything we put our money toward is a matter of stewardship. And stewardship, at the end of the day, is a matter of trust. It's committing to using your resources in wise, generous, and faithful ways. And each one of those Each one of those ways requires you to trust the Lord is going to provide for you when you relinquish the money and the resources that is already his back to him. That's not just fancy pastor talk to get you to give, right? If we really believe what the Bible says about our resources, if we really believe what the Bible says about stewardship, All we're doing every time we relinquish our time, talent, and resources back to the Lord is just saying, take what you gave me. It's yours. Do it wisely. Do it generously. Don't give it all away so that you have nothing left. That would be bad stewardship. But that is the theology behind stewardship. And these are steps of faith, by the way, that puts you in a place to trust God for a future that is largely unseen, but is reinforced by your identity in a God who sees and knows you by name and knows your needs. So let me reframe the question. What do you need to trust the Lord for that you cannot see? Because when we give back to the Lord with our time, with our talent, with our resources, he is going to bless us in ways that aren't always immediately visible. So we should wonder what kind of blessings we might be missing out on when we withhold resources that will expand God's kingdom. I'm so uncomfortable saying that. That was one of the most uncomfortable things in the last 10 years at Substance I have ever written down and ever said to you. Because I just, I'm so squeamy with that kind of stuff. So, let me just say this. This is the kind of talk that prosperity preachers, you know the dudes, the women on TV with the suits that none of us can afford, that none of us should trust, not because they're on TV, but because of the messaging that they put out there, which is give back to God and you're going to wake up one morning and everything you gave back to him is going to materialize in all kinds of blessings that you can see, right? They say, if you give of your material blessings, you will be given back in abundance of material blessings. And what they do is they twist scripture to build their ministries and their personal finances. And by the way, sometimes God blesses us like that. Sometimes God gives people an abundance of material blessings. We see that all over scripture. But that's not why we give back to God. The blessings God has for us when we break free, listen to this, you guys, from the idolatry of money are likely going to be more internal than external. So we trust God with our offerings because we believe he already owns everything. We don't want what we own to own us. We want to have hearts that increasingly desire what the heart of God desires. So again, here's my fourth question. 
What is something you need to take a step of faith in? It should not be reckless. It shouldn't lack wisdom. It should be something you've received godly counsel over. It should be something that draws you to more deeply trust and worship the Lord. It should be something that reminds you of who your identity is found in and also surfaces what might be an iceberg of an idol in your life. It should be something that puts you in a place of dependence before the Lord. It should cost us something. And the good thing that we know is that those kinds of steps of faith are never blind. They're never steps of blind faith. And I think that's what tweaks us. I think that's what we struggle with, is that we think every step of faith is somehow a blind step of faith. We do blind faith things all the time, which is why we're so jacked up when it comes to try to define what it means to take a step of faith. Some of you had blind faith that the Browns were going to make it to the Super Bowl this year, man. I'm all for them, man. I love the, I like the, I'm the underdog guy. I like the teams that never win, right? I wore a Cleveland Indian hat, like literally all growing up because those dudes never won a thing, right? So every year my dad would go and buy me an Indian's hat. They're not called the Indians anymore, so I'm already screwing that up. They were back in the 80s. Um, but I like the underdogs. I like the guys that nobody thinks is gonna do what we all hope they're doing, but it's blind faith. It's blind faith because the object of your faith in the Browns is not sovereign. It's not sovereign. It's putting faith in variables. So we think that's what putting faith in God is like. And then some of you might respond to me when I say that and say, okay, but I still don't know what is going to happen when I put my faith in God. But that's just it. That's just it. Your faith is not placed on a person or a thing that may or may not deliver on their word or an event that may or may not materialize. It's on a God who promises in Psalm 84 that he will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly. Walk uprightly. He will withhold no good thing from those who take steps of faith and put their faith on the object of him as Lord and ruler over all creation. So whatever good thing that he is withholding from you, it's not a good thing for you. So you can trust God for that. So that's why those steps of faith and all the wrong turns that you take when you make steps of faith ultimately are being guided and directed by the sovereign hand and heart of God. That's why you can, you can stake it all on that. That's why everything else is just something you need to get good wisdom on, you need to get good counsel on, but ultimately God is going to do with that what he wants to do. God is also not going to withhold the good that he defines as good, that he determines is good based on the step of faith that you take. So you can, you can anchor it all in God. Does that make sense? You can anchor it all in God. And you know what? Listen, it's okay that your steps of faith look like baby steps sometimes. It's okay that they're wobbly because they're going to be wobbly. It's okay that they're shaky because they're going to be shaky. Sometimes we trip along the way when we take those steps of faith. For the Israelites in the church, listen to this. 
It's not about our steps of faith as much as it's about the unwavering faithfulness of God that accompanies each step. Does that make sense? See, we are so fixated on the thing that we're taking the step of faith towards instead of the God that is accompanying every step that we take who knows our names and our needs, who gives us the identity that we have that reinforces the future we've been given. It's ultimately about the fact that God walks with those he calls. When we first dove into chapter one last week, we saw that the heads of the houses started this pilgrimage. But then when we get into chapter two, we see that God was giving everybody a part in the rebuilding process. All those families had a part in rebuilding the temple. Even with all the doubts they may have had, he was giving everybody a chance to take that step of faith and contribute to the building of the temple. We have doubts, don't we? I do. And yet God walks with those he calls, even when those he calls doubt, if he even called them. Isn't that amazing? The Israelites were not taking any steps that were not established by God. Even the shakiest of ground doesn't cause God to lose his footing. He walks with us. How do we know that's true? Well, we are on the other side of the cross. Our proof is Jesus Christ, who he sent to walk with us in all of our wobbliness. Let's finish by reading Hebrews chapter 10. Make a hard right all the way to almost to the end of the book. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, Jesus, over the house of God, in 22, he says, let us draw near. Let us take that step of faith with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For what? Let's read that together. He who promised is faithful. And with that faithfulness, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Jesus walks with us. Those steps of faith that he is stirring in us, that he is calling us to take are never unaccompanied by him. The most significant thing about the step of faith that you will take from now until you enter glory is not the step that you take, but the faithfulness that accompanies every wobbly step by a God who has drawn near, by a God who does know your name, by a God who does know your needs, by a God who is your identity, and by that identity, your future has been reinforced so what we learn from Ezra 2 is to place our trust in a God that is walking ahead of us, that is walking behind us, and that is carrying us because he is our shepherd forever. Amen? Amen. Can I pray?
Lord, we thank you for these words. We thank you for this genealogy. We thank you for reminding us of your faithfulness to us. We thank you for giving us uh, the encouragement to take steps of faith with our time, talent, and resources, but also with the confidence, Lord, that however imperfect we do that and the fear that exists in doing that and the lack of faith and the doubt that exists in those steps, Lord, you are still walking with us. You are still supporting us. You are still holding us. Lord, I pray for those that need to hear this that are in a desperate place right now. I know that there are some who are battling some very serious and very sad things this week. I know that some of us are suffering some loss. I know that some of us are unable to make heads or tails out of the way that life is presenting itself right now. I pray that you would walk with them. Lord, help us as a church to walk with them or to care for them, to acknowledge what it is that they're going through. Lord, as they're weak and wobbly in their faith, Lord, that our faith might strengthen them, that the way in which your faithfulness is known in our lives, it will be known in their lives through us. And so, Lord, we thank you for this word of truth and encouragement today and pray that it continues to change us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.